together and pray for forgiveness. No, mama. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 152. <laughs> Wow. Here's a Boo Crew fr- Fright Fact. What? Say it again. Here's a Boo Crew Fright, fright Fact. In 1974's <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Marilyn Burns, whose character was chased by Leatherface through the undergrowth, actually cut herself with branches and there was a lot of blood all over her body and her costuming. Like the real stuff. Like she oh, was man. bleeding. Authentic. Very authentic. <laughs> Practical effects. That's right. It doesn't get better than that, right? We want to welcome our new Boo Crew Patreon member. Is it Patreon or Patreon? Or are you a patron? Patreon member. Patreon member. Patron. Or patron. Yeah. So you could be a Patreon member or a patron. Okay. Welcome new Boo Crew Patreon member, Veronica. Woo! Now, yeah. me- did you see the comment, Leo? Did you see what she wrote? No, I did not. She wrote something so freaking nice it was so nice it like made our day it really did i was smiling the whole day after so she commented to so on our patreon page we've got some behind the scenes videos and special bonus episodes and and photos of what goes on here with some guests and alex wolf playing piano and singing a made-up song about his experience here at the boo crew and (laughs) the fact that he was afraid we were gonna cut him into pieces and keep him in a box in the attic but one of the one of the recent <laughs> one of the recent videos we did we did a studio tour and we, we posted it on there a two part studio tour I think that it's I went on for a long oh, time. Oh yes, you did. I think it's almost an hour long studio tour, Leo. And you know what? I wow. warned him before. I was like, let's not do two hours. Let's not even do an hour. Let's keep the people engaged because Trevor can really geek out on all the stuff that's going on in this room which i totally right. get but not everybody wants to geek out <laughs> the way he wants to geek out but he gave people- i got excited about some things i wanted yeah. to go into the detail i figured anyone who's gonna even bother watch that video is gonna be someone who might want to know a little bit about each of the things in the room so i or went everything. yeah i went a little too far i think but veronica actually really appreciated that and she wrote a very nice review detailing her appreciation for the video and that really meant a lot so veronica thank you so much welcome to the fold yes and if you want to be part of our patreon our patreon if you want to be part of our if you want to be a patron on our patreon check out patreon.com slash the boo crew we'll send you a nice pen yes some stickers very nice buttons. postcard and our love buttons yeah and a bunch of random episodes that's right. And we got a review specific to Patreon. And you know why, Leo? No, why? Because one of our members lives in Portugal. Where they try and write a review on Apple Podcasts, we don't see it in the North American store. So he wrote his review on our Patreon site. And Leo, you're going to read it right now. So that's Psycho Dev writes, Hey, Boo Crew, greetings from Portugal. Or as you know, we would say over here uh, in Portugal, Bom dia, or maybe bom noite if it's nighttime. 
I wanted to send you this message because I can't leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I listen to your podcast on Spotify. I discovered your oh, podcast. Oh, sorry. Maybe that's, hold on. Maybe that's the reason. I made up this whole reason. But isn't that true, though, Leo? If, if you live in another country, you can't write a review in the North American store, correct? Correct. Okay. So even if like, he wasn't listening on Spotify, okay. we wouldn't have seen it. All right. So I was kind of right. But anyway, Leo, sorry. Back to your review. I'll start all over. No, this is, this is good. <laughs> I'll do it over. No, 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 no. So, I discovered so, your podcast. Leave it right. It's okay. I discovered your podcast later last year and have been listening since then, not missing one episode. None of my friends love horror, so I used to feel like a psychopath every time I wanted to talk about a movie. And as you have the same quote-unquote problem, I don't feel so bad anymore. I have a full watch list of movies to watch and rewatch that you recommended. I've learned a lot with you guys, and for that, thank you. My rating, five skulls out of five. Yeah, I love Woo! the skulls! Yeah. Patreon yes. has skulls! Yeah, yes. that's right. You can't find that anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he says, he writes, P.S. Since you guys also love music, I wanted to give you a recommendation from Portugal. Dementia 13, a death metal band whose songs are about classic horror movies like The Driller Killer, The Beyond, and many more. Ooh. That sounds amazing. I've not heard of Dementia 13. I don't know how I, know. I have not heard of them. Okay, we gotta look them know, up. Right? All right, we gotta yes. look them up. Well, thank you yeah. so much for even taking the time to put it on Patreon. It means so much to us, and I hope that you know you continue to find really cool movies through us and look we learned something from you and we're gonna try and get dementia we should try and get dementia 13 on this show yeah yeah that'd be fun so you can also go to apple Podcasts to rate the show and write us a review there and we will read every single one here at the top of the show like this very next one lovely lauren will take over damn it amazon keeps canceling my freaking orders it's driving me what food order no, my popcorn and my uh, laundry detergent. Oh, yeah, We're all right? going to smell now. Ordering stuff in time of quarantine. Oh, uh, okay. All Sorry. part of the show, folks. Whispers 77. Love this show. I recently discovered this podcast and absolutely love it. Love the content of the show. The intro for each guest is epic. <laughs> Woo. As a fan yeah. of metal music, it was because of you that I discovered Spirit Box. Ooh, good band. Love I've li- them. So good. I've listened to pretty much every episode, and my favorite is the one with Rob... Ooh, of course you gave me this one. With Robert England, and I think we all know why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a very scary episode. That was really hard. I mean, Lauren didn't even want to be in the room for that one, and he was on <laughs> Skype or Zoom or something. Right. Yeah. Right. You didn't know that he couldn't come through that computer and attack me. <laughs> You put me at risk. A lot. Maybe someone listening now does not know the whole backstory with you and Robert England. Well, I'll just give a brief version. Brief? Brief. Whatever. I'm so tired, guys. The brief version is I saw parts of A Nightmare on Elm Street when I was seven. I was way too young to be watching it. And it really scared the shit out of me. And I thought he was real. I realize now maybe he's not. I'm still still on the fence on that one. And so I've been scared of him and the franchise for since I was seven. And my cousin used to keep me out of his room by putting a Robert England Freddy Krueger cutout, one of those like stand things, cardboard in front of his room. And I never would go nice. in because I was so scared. 
And I worked for this show called Loveline. We had Robert England come in and Dr. Drew was trying to help me through it and saying like, you know what? You're going to meet him. He's such a nice guy. Like he's not the character that you think he is. He's just a regular guy. And, you know, his his face looks a lot like Freddy because, I mean, I guess it is. Pretty and much it, is. it's hard yeah. <laughs> to like separate the two so i was really scared and then dr drew told him i was really scared and then he had fun with me and he had brought a glove because it was from freddy versus jason and he grabbed the back of my back and when i was getting him coffee and he was like in his scary freddy voice thank you for the coffee bitch and then I literally lost it and started crying and left. And he remembered that. That's right. Your first confrontation with Robert England didn't happen again till he was on the show that Whisper 77 was referring to, where you yeah. got to tell him and remind him of what happened. And he did recall. Yeah. And I think he said, See, he said the B word again. Yeah. To you yeah. on the show. <laughs> yeah. And we all laughed. <laughs> And I did not laugh. I did not laugh. I did not laugh. I did not sleep for a good three weeks after that. So, yes, that was a epic episode for people that thought it was funny that I was so scared. Guys, he's so scared. I mean, scared. it's it's horror history. Come on. You got scratched in the back by Freddy Krueger and his actual gloves and knives, you know? That's true. That's uh, true. You know what? The Who can say that? I wish it was not me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling a feeling a lot of people at conventions could probably say that knowing Robert England and how awesome he is with fans. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is a great thing about these horror heroes of ours, right? Yeah. From Kane Hodder yeah. to Robert England and They're all great. Lisa Rose and everybody. Everybody. Yeah. And Whisper 77, you rule as well, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Yes. Yes. Thank yes. you so much. Uh, and then Spirit Box, yeah, that would be episode 94 and anyway you got to check out spirit box they actually have like a spirit box going in the background throughout their recordings it's intercepting transmissions from paranormal realms it's it's quite incredible and it yeah. is not a gimmick their music is insane next level yes. crazy their latest yes. singles out right now holy roller leo you seen that video for holy roller oh, it's dropped? fucking awesome man yeah it's got that whole yeah. it's for, like they shot mid it in a field and like had that midsummer mid yeah it's a tribute right, to midsummer right. yeah she's courtney yeah. dressed up as the may queen I know she's awesome, man. Yeah, she's killer. So if you'd like your review read at the top of the show, Apple Podcasts is a place. So this time around, we are haunted by actor, writer, and director Jay Baruchel. You are going to love this dude. You see him in everything from Knocked Up to Almost Famous, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, Million Dollar Baby, and he's just made his first horror film. It's called Random Acts of Violence. It's available exclusively on Shudder. We talk all about this extraordinary slasher film. It's got elements of true crime, comic books. It's so wonderful and unique. It's terrifying and emotional and beautifully done. Find out what film scare him the most and influence him we go over the crow movies like gravity carry and so much more this guy is the absolute best episode 152 starts now uh, hi there gang this is jay baruchel and you're listening to another terrifying episode of the boo crew oh my god what the fuck is going on is there a concern that 
Man. Slasher Man could push the already unstable over the edge of the violence. I've done, what, a thousand kills? Once in a while, one of them might match up with something that happens in this country. We need to call the cops. And tell them what? That it's a killer running around recreating murders for my comics? What is it? Oh my god. Todd drew this. I can't wait to show you. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an Emmy Award winning actor, writer, producer, and director whose fascinating and fun career has led everybody to be exposed to and affected by his wide breadth of work. He appeared on the seminal Gemini Award winning gateway horror drug to so many young monster kids, the iconic Are You Afraid of the Dark TV series, starred in the tremendous TV show Undeclared, went on to projects like Cameron Crowe's Oscar winning Almost Famous, Clint Eastwood's four time Oscar winning Million Dollar Baby, one of the most hilarious comedy films ever made made and winner of the People's Choice and AFI Award for being just that, knocked up. Ben Stiller's Oscar-nominated Tropic Thunder, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, This Is The End, won an Annie Award for its voice work in How to Train Your Dragon, wrote the comedy hockey films Goon and Goon, Last of the Enforcers, showed up in Letterkenny, that's not even half of the list of stuff this dude has done. Through his versatility and diverse choice of roles, I'm looking at this guy right now, and he's someone that has made all of us laugh to the point of tears, find bits of ourselves in truly heartbreaking and poignant moments, has both celebrated our awkwardness, made us feel cool, and has entertained and inspired us to no end. We are so excited that his new horror experience he has written, directed, and stars in is here, available exclusively on Shudder. It is a brutal symphony of terror called Random Acts of Violence. What an honor to welcome Jay Baruchel. Yeah. Holy Craig. Thank you so much. That's, uh, I, I, I would, I wish, would that everybody introduced me that way. I, I uh, yeah, I'm very humbled. Thank you for having me. Dude, thank you so much. And congrats on this film being out there for everyone to see. You made a phenomenal and very unique movie that we are all yeah. obsessed with right now. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you. Well, how are you feeling right now that everybody can finally see this thing? Yeah, it's a weird kaleidoscope of emotions. It's like it's it's the end of uh, of a a decade, basically, because we had as a decade ago, we wrote the first pass of the first treatment of the thing. So it's 10 years now. And so that's crazy that the journey is kind of finally over at least my 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 kind of portion of it in earnest anyway movie will still be out there and but but yeah it's 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 really cool it's so so it's it's like there's a weird kind of purgatory you know you get when you're just done something impactful and you just don't quite know what to how to process anything but at the same time i'm like it's super, super touching to that a bunch of people are connecting to it in, in, in the way that we had hoped they would. And it's also, <laughs> it's also humbling and in a petty way, satisfying that it's garnering the sort of <laughs> the ire that the negative reviews of it have specifically. It's kind of like, yeah. So, so either way, it's just a whole bunch of, whole bunch of emotions, but mostly pride. That's the biggest one. Let's start with your horror lineage and background of your love of the genre, starting with the first horror film you remember seeing and how did it make you feel? Well, so the first time I was like scared shitless in a movie, I was like, it was, it was Ghostbusters. I was three or four and my parents 
I like, you know, I was like, I want to watch a funny movie, you know, because I, I had gotten I, when I was little, I was like, you know, it was like Caddyshack and that kind of stuff. And I lay, you know, and so I was like, I want to watch a funny. And they said, no, it is a funny movie. And then it started. And I was remembering being like, they lied to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was scary, man. I remember first seeing that in yeah. a theater, too, with those dogs Good and Lord, everything. That, that opening, like for a three year old or four year old, I was just like, yeah, it's seared and took my fucking head off. Um, <laughs> but like the first mo- movie that like fucked with me and I like elected to have that happen and hoped that would happen, you know, sought a scary movie and it kind of got to me was it would either be Carrie or Psycho. Um, and, and I remember watching Psycho at a sleepover with a friend of mine, we were like 12 or 13 and, and I had already like, I was okay to watch old, old movies. He refused to watch anything old and, and black and white, Jesus, that would just be like the worst. And and I was like, I, I really think we should give it a try. And fuck, flash forward to the last 20 minutes of the movie. And there's two 12 year olds in sleeping bags. Just like, holy <laughs> frig. Like it, 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 there was not a single piece of it that was left on the table. It, it functioned exactly as it was meant to, to our two little 12 year old brains. Yeah. And then Carrie just like. That shit got in my head in a massive way. Uh, but, but yeah, if I was going to like see like a sort of moment where I, realized oh this is a fucking heavy thing and this is something i wanted to be a part of it'd probably be that psycho watching psycho in my bedroom when i was 12 yeah that's awesome you know we have a random funny carry story that relates directly to you so in 2006 we fell in love with your movie i'm reed fish Whoa, crazy. Yeah, yeah, that you did with uh, Alexis Bledel and Skylar Fisk, who is Sissy yeah. Spacek's daughter. And yeah, that song that's in that movie, From Where I'm Standing, we oh, were just like, that and song. that scene where you're watching her play it in the bar. And, that's a lovely song. I mean, my God, that's just one of those many heartbreaking scenes that, that you've done in your career. And that moment in particular just resonated so deeply with us. Oh, cool. And then it, it led us down the path of following Skylar's musical career as well. Yeah. And then we ended up going to see her play at the hotel cafe. Yeah. And then oh, who, that's fucking and, cool. and who was there sitting in the front row? Sissy space egg. Right. We oh, freaked out. We were so excited. Yeah, Lauren like could barely even deal with it. It was terrifying for her to see Sissy Space Egg from Carrie. I was like, where are the exits? Where are the exits? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fucking <laughs> Everybody be nice to her. Right, Don't exactly. do not make a fool of her. <laughs> that, I mean, just randomly, I know it's you know it's got nothing to do with horror <laughs> at all. But since that movie is so near and dear to us. Did do people still talk to you about that movie? Does it resonate with people? No, man. I did not expect to fucking hear about that. Like, guys, that like maybe once every two years. Honestly, like, 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 yeah, because it's a tiny little movie that, like, you know, like I'm proud of it and I dig it. And it, it certainly means something to me. But like, yeah, I just am like, it, it, it's look. There's a lot of fucking movies out there, so, so I just is like, you know, some of them, some of them don't occupy a tremendous amount of real estate. So I'm very touched that you, that you guys like it. Oh, very cool, very cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, getting back into horror a bit. So, what films kind of do you think became canon for you, and maybe crept into your brain, perhaps, and your creative vocabulary as a storyteller? Oh, oh thanks. Uh, thank you for that question. In a massive way, The Exorcist. Texas Chainsaw, the original Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, 
uh, Irreversible, 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I, I, I would argue is one of the scariest films ever made, and Seven, and, and The Cell, and The Cell. The I, cell I saw that twice. brilliant. Oh, nice. oh my God. Twice at the yeah. theater. Yeah. I, I saw that movie twice in the theater. I fucking adore that film. Speaking of like 2001, the, the, the horrifying space movies, basically. Did you ever see Gravity? So that's the last movie that scared me, uh, is Gravity. Like, that was the last film that I saw in the theater where I was so, what I was feeling was so deeply unpleasant that I was like, I'm going to have to tell my friend, I'll meet him in the lobby afterwards. I don't think I can actually watch this movie. <laughs> and then, like... Once that kind of once I got once I knew I wasn't going to vomit and like and got my version of sea legs there, I was like, oh, fuck, no, this is the whole thing. This is that rarest like I want nothing more than for a movie to 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 fuck with me in a in a profound way. And as you guys know, at a certain point, it's hard to keep getting scared by stuff. And and so to find something sort of redefine and figure out what scary is you know uh after a hundred plus years of of scary uh, of scary filmmaking to kind of still come up with something else you know to, to find out what it means now is 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 quite something and and for me i like i've been scared of space for whatever combination of reasons since i was a kid but yeah i i, I love that fucking movie oh and there's one else i should put on the list that i always uh, uh, the Scorsese Cape Fear. That that movie is everything to me. Um, that that's a movie that works its way into everything that I think about. Well, talking about all those movies and just judging kind of by the time you grew up and probably were discovering a lot of film titles at video stores and being exposed to all this sort of stuff. One of those sleepover movies was probably right around the same time. It was like Predator and RoboCop, and you Absolutely. you had the opportunity to be in. Involved in the RoboCop universe in 2014 yeah. was the original Paul Verhoeven film something that was part of your upbringing and huge to me. But actually, number two was more important to me. The the Irvin Kershner one, RoboCop two. That 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 movie because I got it on VHS as a Christmas present, like when I was like 12 or 13 from my dad. And like that year was that it was the Joe Pesci movie, The Super which is a great old kind of forgotten movie. Um, uh, I think it was, yeah, the super where he plays the slumlord, but, uh, but RoboCop too. I remember watching it on Christmas day. Uh, and, and it's just like, I, I go back to it. I still go back to it a lot, but yeah, the, the, the Verhoeven RoboCop is, you know, he, he, he is a huge, huge, huge hero of mine because one of the most greatest movie watching experiences in a, in a theater for me ever was seeing Starship Troopers on opening night. Total Recall is probably my in my top ten favorite films ever, and and I have a shitload of adoration for Basic Instinct. I think that's a movie that doesn't it should loom higher than it looms. I think it's like been kind of dismissed because of different things to a degree, you know. But but I think it's like I think it's a pretty special film, Basic Instinct. What did you love about seeing The Crow for the first time? Oh man, yeah. So. The first time I saw The Crow, I wasn't ready. I was too young to see it the first time I saw it. And I like had to, I had to turn it off. I was like, yeah, like in the first, like I was 13, 14, something. And it was just like, it was way too heavy for me. When I, when I remember the moment that I paused it, when he squeezes all the morphine back out of her fucking veins and, and you see it come out of the needle holes. And I was like at 13, it just wasn't, I wasn't there yet. 
but then a few years went by and I kind of was able to watch it and man, and that's like a yearly watch one for me that, that, that movie is like, so my dad's, one of my dad's heroes is Bruce Lee. And he, and he raised me very much uh, a devout cult member in that cult of personality. And so so Bruce is very important in our house. And I was a big fan of fucking rapid fire and, and uh, showdown little Tokyo. And so like, I, I, I had a great affinity for Brandon and then, even though I hadn't seen them, like I knew what happened. It just kind of like the father and son thing. There was something about me seeing my Bruce and knowing that he was already gone, you know, and, and I, and I don't want to build in too much of that because the movie is, is a masterpiece and beautiful independent of anything it's haunted by without that tragedy. I think the movie is every bit as fucking important as it is, but everything in there is definitely sort of, it informs everything. It can't help, but it, 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 it just, it, it, it has to, but that, but so what, what is it about that movie? Absolutely. Everything it is. It is like, like a, so a movie is very much, obviously a collaboration. It's a bunch of different artists coming together, but every once in a while you get one where the sort of unity of vision is so fucking distinct and strong. And every single centimeter of that film connects like the music is correct. The look is correct. The energy is correct. The themes are correct. The acting, the performance is like everything is just perfectly in concert. And it's a movie that is like as, as harsh as it is, it's an incredibly earnest movie and it says really, really beautiful things. And at, at its heart, it's a fucking love story, but it earns, it earns those, those moments of light. It earns that heart on its sleeve shit by, by getting to go as hard as it does the rest of the time. So it's just like, I'll spend my life trying to create something that means half as much as the crow means. And I'm a big fan of the fucking graphic novel as well. James O'Barr's book is, is like a brilliant fucking piece of work on its own. What did you think by the time the, the sequel came out, like city of angels and what happened after that point? You know, like, look, every, every movie is, is somebody's baby. So I, I, you know, I'm going to, and I, and I have a big mouth, so I have it and I'm opinionated. And so I don't want to shit on anything too hard. I guess I just did by saying that, <laughs> given that disclaimer, but like at the same, cause there was the movies, but there was also a TV show with Mark DeCascos. That's so right. It was like all in broad daylight in like all like 40 shot, 45 minutes away from Toronto and fucking two o'clock in the afternoon. And he's on a motorcycle and like, it just like none of it, none of it was the thing. And so I, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever actually seen the, the uh, Vincent Perez one A to Z. I think I've seen pieces of it, but I, I've not like, I would like to sit down and do it one day but I am too precious about Alex Proyas's movie. And I, like, I would, it would, it would be impossible for me to watch it fairly. No, I get it. There's a, it's mystical. Like that, honestly, that first crow is mystical. There's not many movies yes. that have captured that lightning in a bottle. You know, I, I That's completely it. agree. Exactly. It's mystical is about the best word I could come up with because it's why it works is that we can't, there aren't words to describe why it works. That's that's why it's a movie and not a and not a fucking transcript of a conversation. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Well, let's let's talk about so random acts of violence has been something that you said it's had a very long gestation period. So can you talk briefly about like why 
it took so long to actually finally get physically yeah. made? Um, well, it starts from I chose in a uh, prohibitively art form, prohibitively expensive art form to work in. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> like the the cheapest movie is like the cost of a decent house, right? Like, you know, the, the, in terms of production cost, there's not a painting or a record that costs what a movie costs to make. And in a small movie that isn't, you know, Harry Potter or Marvel or Star Wars has to be somebody's baby. So you've got to convince somebody, you've got to, or more likely you've got to convince a number of people to give you at least a million dollars. Yeah, that's a lot. You ask anybody to do that. (laughs) So you have to convince multiple people to give you upwards of a million dollars. And you've got to believe in the thing enough to suffer 12 rounds of eating shit. Because like a small movie is a 12 round decision. It's not a fucking first round knockout. It It like, you know, especially in Canada. And so you're fighting for thousands of dollars here and thousands of dollars there. And then there's the third piece. So let's say you believe in yourself and let's say you've got a line on some resources and it's, it's real because there's also a lot, you'd be surprised how many people pretend they have access to stuff. <laughs> but so let's say you've got a line on something and, and your spider senses aren't tingling, you know, it's legit and you believe in the fucking thing, but then they don't see the same movie that you see. And then, and then you're forced into this like really kind of difficult, difficult position because it's like, can I, can I just schmooze them and play the game and manage their personalities and expectations and play a sort of artistic three card Monty with them and just keep them off me enough that I can make the thing I want and get them to pay for it. Right. Like, cause then, cause you get, you read romantic stories of Michael Cimino on the set of, deer hunter taking all the rushes with him into his car and not letting any anybody in LA see them. And you're like, Oh fuck, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's probably way fucking better and more efficient to just find someone that makes, wants to make the thing you want to make. Right. And so our movie, like a lot of small movies died a bunch of deaths before we, it finally came to life. And both times it was like clear that the movie that they thought that they were interested in funding was not, was not the movie that we had written and and they they read the thing we wrote but they saw they they saw a piece they saw the thing they wanted to see and what i so i guess what i'm trying to go with is people in 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 the wake of this is the end people heard that i was trying to make a horror movie and so they assumed it was a horror comedy and it was their piece of the this is the end shit and and i would be faced with like and i would get i would get these like sort of conversations with these folks about so what do you you think in terms of cast and i would pitch a bunch of ideas that i'd had and they'd be like oh well these are all dramatic actors i'd be like yeah (laughs) and then they'd be like and and what do you think of at the end when slasher man's mask is finally off it's like a big cameo like like schwarzenegger or somebody and be like i don't think that's a great pitch like i'd love to work with schwarzenegger that's not the right scenario i I, if I have managed to fucking cultivate attention and keep everyone interested in my flick through an hour plus of storytelling, 
the last fucking f- 10 minutes before the credits is when I want to do like a fucking, <laughs> you know, Zucker Brothers right. reveal or something like fuck that. Like that's, you know, no. And, 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 and so you have to, re- you don't have to read between the lines too much to be like, Oh, they, they, they want something else. And then, and then you've got to have this, then you're like, fuck man, I just want to make the bloody thing. But there are certain adjustments and, and you will inevitably have to narrow or broaden. You'll have to adjust. And this is compromise. That's fine. But there are certain ones that are a bridge too far. There are certain changes that would negate the entire purpose of the thing existing. And, and, if, and if you're faced with those, you kind of have no choice but to be like, I'd rather just wait and, not, and maybe not make the thing. So what was it that said, what was it about this story that made you not give up? Oh boy. Uh, at, at a certain point, cause it started super humble. It started as just what they used to call a, a pot boiler. Like it was a gig. It was something, it was something that we were, we were hired to adapt a thing and we just tried to do that to the best of our abilities in doing that though, in, in trying our hardest, we got super connected to it and possessive of it and, and really protective of it. And we just started digging the thing that we were building. And I kept sort of seeing it in my mind's eye very, very, very vividly. And, and so we were just like, we, for lack of a less hokey term, we just really believed in it. We really thought there was something here and, and, you know, and, and, and it was a movie that we wanted to see. That's the best way I can say it. You know, it does the heavy lifting for you. You can eat, you can eat 12 rounds of shit if you actually think the thing is worth doing. Since it took almost a decade and you went through all these obstacles to get it filmed, what was your feeling like being on the set the first day? Just finally, after so long and everything came together, it must have been magical. It certainly was. It certainly, certainly was but I didn't allow myself too much time to kind of bask in that because the minute that the sun is up, the uh, meter's going, Hmm. you know, the the light is dying and the money is being spent. And so I, I, my, my enjoyment of finally getting to be there was like immediately killed by my having to make our day and knowing that like, and and now that I made it and, and, and God willing, I make it through this day all right, fuck, I've got 19 more of these to do. And so, so, you know, I, now is the time, I guess that's why when you ask me how I'm feeling now, now is a time where I can actually absorb a bit of it. And like, yeah, it's, it's huge. It's crazy. We, we could have bailed and maybe, <laughs> maybe should have our stomachs and our, and our uh, hairlines would be a bit more intact, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy we didn't. So twenty wait twenty days is that what you said twenty days to film this and and really about nineteen and a half yeah wow and it's I mean this is like a road movie there's yeah. there's not just one yeah, set yeah. there's plenty of sets yeah. and really elaborate ones was that right that must have been an incredible amount of pressure yeah yeah because also we were just like and you know. Yes, but also it wasn't like anyone was holding my wife or my mom at gunpoint and being like, you better make this horror movie. Right. Like, yeah. it was all my choice. Like, I just, like, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm a, you know, masochist, I guess. But like, um, yeah, it was 19 days and yeah, we had car stuff and gunplay and a bunch of, and fire shit and some knife stuff. And, 
yeah, there's like a lot of lot of moving parts. <laughs> so we just we just planned the hell out of it. We were just like my my cinematographer Kareem Hussein and I and our uh, my first assistant director Aurel Gaudet. We just like I I I I don't know that the movie exists. Well, I no, I know the movie doesn't exist without them. The schedule is all Aurel's baby, and he was able to figure out a way to do it. And he was like super committed to making us, he was insistent that we sacrificed nothing. So he was hell bent on making sure that we could do it. Now that comes with shit that we now have to adhere to, but he figured out a way for us to do the thing we wanted. And Kareem and I, we did our kind of homework by getting through six drafts of our shot list before prep was done. And like, you know, so we just, we planned as best as we could knowing that we'd never have enough time and we'd never have enough money. And without a doubt, something wouldn't show up on the day the way that it was supposed to. And so we just had as many backups and ready to go as, as best as we could. Oh, that's brilliant. The Boo Crew will be right back. Hello? Anybody home? Sally, I hear something. Stop. Ah! The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from New Line Cinema. Rated R. No one under 17 admitted without parent or guardian. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In terms of uh, the concept, uh, writing and pre-production, was there a real-life serial killer that you studied or became fascinated with, and or what inspired the Slasher Man serial killer storyline and look? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so during prep, actually, Kareem and I were both reading the same book. <laughs> Mercifully, we had two uh, copies, <laughs> which is probably better for my wife and his girlfriend. <laughs> We read the same book throughout all of prep, which was the uh, Black Dahlia Avenger by Stephen Hodell, who uh, he also wrote a book called, I think, Zo- uh, Zodiac Event. He's a guy, Hodell, who is a LA, veteran LAPD homicide detective who is convinced his father is the Black Dahlia murderer as well as the Zodiac. It's a very, very compelling read. And his whole take on it, it specifically was that uh, this awful murder was in addition to being an awful murder that it was specifically a form of creative expression that it was a, a work of art on the part of his father and it is like a window into kind of seedy circles in in the golden age of hollywood and it's just like and it's it, and it's and it's like it's not um kind of crass and exploitative it's 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 a really strong strongly written piece of work so that was definitely in our in our brains when we were kind of building the movie in, in terms of like actual sort of serial killers that kind of impacted us in a, in a way, like, you know, I, I know that when we were kids, there was something, these, I think in the States, you guys call them the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. And they, uh, there was this husband and wife and they killed these uh, three girls, one of whom was the wife's sister. But when it was sort of happening, before they got caught, it was just this awful, you know, girls were going missing near where I grew up. And, and then this crazy sort of biggest trial in Canadian history happened. And anyway, so it's never not been 
it's as uh, omnipresent in my life as air and, and fire and, uh, you know, asphalt, like the, 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 the concept and the, the, the idea that, that there's, these, you know, broken minds out there doing awful things and, you know, and, and a fascination with them, I, I confess has been there since the beginning. And my mother was a big true crime fan. And so I, I read John Douglas's mind hunter book when I was like 14 and I, I like, I've just always been interested in it. And, um, and this movie is part of me trying to figure out why I think. Throughout the film, you incorporated the use of the point of view stalker cam and the use of colored lights to accentuate the vividness of colors often seen in comics. What are some of the comics or films that inspire the look of the film? Oh, cool. So the, the, the look of the film is definitely, there's two, two kind of big influences for the aesthetic Kareem's big kind of inspiration or, or we both come in with sort of movies that we're interested in and it's not necessarily anything. Sometimes it can be something that's just like, there's a tone or an energy here, but maybe in us sort of experiencing these and figuring out what we like about them, we can figure out what it is we want to make the audience feel in ours. And so the, the two that were kept coming up were um, white of the eye. I think it's called it's a, a early 80s i think it's a british flick it takes place in the states a serial killer flick and it's all steady cam and it has like some pretty crazy steady cam work in it and then the red shoes the powell and pressburger flick from the like late 40s there's one sequence in there in particular that i was like really was i don't like the term spirit animal uh, it is my kind of guiding guiding force the scene when she ballet dancers on stage and you're, you stop watching the performance and at a certain point you're on the stage in it with her and the, the, the color of the light and the way it moves and just the feeling in my stomach when I watch it, I was like, I want to do the kind of angry version of this, I think is correct. And then, uh, and then for the violence itself, that's kind of um, uh, irreversible, Zodiac and uh, every Scorsese flick. It's interesting how important a role color plays in this film the palette you use of colors is shocking too it's really strong colors that neon green house and everything's awash in in this rich reds and burnt oranges and it's interesting because there's panels in the original graphic novel that references color and what it does to someone when they yeah, see the Kandinsky it. bit, the Kandinsky bit, right? Yeah. yeah in the graphic novel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's a part yeah, that yeah. says uh, red, red, the red is the color of blood, life, birth, seduction, pain, fear, torture, and suffering. And you wash so much of this film in red and it's, yeah, it just throws you off and it's really unsettling. Yeah. Oh, good. 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 Thank you. We, we came up with those ideas on morning one of prep. We hadn't got into the office yet. I was outside having a smoke and Kareem walked up and gave each other a hug. And we're like, we finally getting to make a movie together, which is cool because I'd known him since I was 16. So 20 years after meeting him, we finally get to make a movie together. And, and, and then he was like, okay, so cyan and Amber and fire and water. And I was like, okay, let's fucking get into That's it. Great. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, fuck yeah, man. Amber's on the same uh, side of the color wheel as my shit, which is like a kind of almost uh, slightly violety pink. I was saying, I kept saying the, the, the accumulation of Christmas lights firing all at once 
So, you know, there you the go. Yeah. Christmas tree, it's pinky kind of, that's what it all kind of creates a pinky and I and feeling and I, and so, and I was like, that matches with what you were saying. And, and then we just started figuring, and then we went in the fucking office, <laughs> but I swear to God, we, we like talked about color the first morning and then we, we auditioned them in our camera tests and we were like, felt everything that you just described. We were like, not only like, you know, yeah, this looks fucking awesome, man, but like our eyes love it, but it's also doing something. It has an emotional resonance. Like we, we like, it's going to be, it's scary if we want it to be fucking scary. It's also beautiful when we want it to be beautiful. And it, we just were like, Oh man, this has perfect application in the story. And so like, cause, cause had we tested it and thought it was like, hokey we would have figured something else out you know but but it, it landed man and it, and it kind of did something to us also one really unique thing is right when the movie starts this incredible credit sequence with the yeah, animated versions of all the serial killers and the way that the yeah. titles are kind of remix and scramble and spell out the words and this punk rock stuff how important is that to, like do you spend a lot of time it seems like you'd spend a lot of time on that yeah so that's like our assistant editor nathan boone when, and we cut the thing, we cut both my movies in this basement right here. No uh, way. And Nathan's desk was back there. And there was one day where, yeah, he goes, cause in the opening, cause in the, in the first page of the script is a kind of what would eventually become that title sequence is on the first page. It, it's a series of, of paragraphs of just describing a bunch of different fucked up images that I thought went into Todd's head. And Nathan was like, you want, he's like, you, you want Gaspar Noe titles, don't you? I was like, yeah, I fucking do. <laughs> and so he just went and built this fucking thing himself. And, and then, and he, and he, and every piece of artwork in there is hand drawn by him. Like he went through a bunch of source material, traced all of it, like built the whole thing. And then, and then Andrew, my editor, who's 50% of our composing duo as well and did all the animations in the movie. He then came up with a sick piece of music to go with it. And, and that, that's one of the cool things about this thing is that it, it is a, uh, this movie is the product of a group of friends. Like the people that I made this with is who I hang out with and who are, who like when I went as Canada day and have a barbecue time or my wedding or whatever, like you know, just, or watch, go to the movies. This is who I hang. This is, this is all of us. And so we have these chats for and hang out and just live this life for years and talk about movies and music and all these different things we like. And then eventually, if we're lucky, we get to put it all into something. And that's what this is. The score is insane, too. It's got that yes. real like Carpenter-esque yeah. feel, but like yeah. remixed. It's so great. Who did the score? So my editor, Andrew Gordon McPherson and, uh, and Wade McNeil was lead guitarist in Alexis on fire is lead vocalist in gallows and also is in the movie. He plays the radio host that kind of, oh, ambushes no, I didn't even realize <laughs> that. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's like, it's a, it's really just a bunch of friends made a movie. The way that you position the camera in this movie and the view that we get in the radio station, for instance, there's a, there's a moment when the camera's like on the table at a weird angle you know, looking yeah. at Todd or the way the camera enters the house near the end. It's just an interesting perspective. Was that something that you developed along with your DP or what was the intent there? Yeah. I've had a crippling love of Dutch angles since I was a kid. Like all my first, all the movies I made in high school are all like that, you know, and I, and, and, and so 
Yeah, Kareem and I, when we were kind of figuring out that the, you know, what we think the camera is doing, which is, you know, you come up with these kind of funny, silly little inside jokes or shorthands, but like, so for us, the camera in Random Acts of Violence is what we call it the curious ghost. It's, it's like a character that you can't see or hear. And, and it, it can get real close and kind of sniff things, but it can also fall back and watch just things happen. But it kind of drifts around and it's, yeah, it's this ghost. And so we definitely knew like the, the, what the camera does coming into the house at the end is all, that's all just trying to articulate where Todd's at mentally that we're now fucking well, well, well past the Rubicon. <laughs> and life is absolutely perfect. <laughs> right, right. And the center is not holding and everything is fucking going upside down. Tell us about the casting process and finding your Todd, Kathy, Aurora, and of course, our villain. Oh, I was really lucky that we sent the script out and that there was a bunch of actors who connected to it. And which like, that's that's everything. And then I was even luckier that a bunch of them wanted to chat with me. And so I had just a bunch of kind of informal chats for, for our two leads and both the same thing happened both times, which was like about four minutes into the conversation with Jordana and with Jesse, everything in me was like, Oh, you found them here. They are. This is, this is, this is them. And it was this exciting thing because for the eight years prior, they'd existed as ones and zeros on my computer or, or ink and paper. Then, and there was a profound kind of hole in each character that it like, and that's not about uh, not developing it. That's just about knowing that an actor is going to take ownership of it if they give a shit and, and they're going to come up with things that could never occur to me. Right. And, and so in chatting with them, I guess there's a combination of like their cadence, how they carried themselves, the tenor of their voice, and also what we were talking about. I just, it was like you know, completely instinctive. And I was just like, yeah, we got to do whatever we can to get them in our movie. Now, Simon Northwood, who plays uh, the killer, the man, that was like a way, way more stressful process. We, we started shooting as many movies do on a Monday. We cast Simon the Friday before that Monday. Wow. So oh, it was wow. horrible, horrible thing to go through. We, Went through, like, I'll say this. It wasn't for lack of trying. <laughs> it ended the way it ended because it was supposed to. Like, it's one, so it's one of those things, you know, and I wouldn't have it any other way because Simon is a, a beast and a lovely man. And, and one of the things I'm most proud of in the movie is his performance. But it wasn't for lack of trying. Like, in, in prep, we, we had three rounds of auditions. Twice we had actors that we made offers to and implied that they would say yes <laughs> and only to not at the 11th hour. Now we're in the last week of prep and we're starting to figure out like, do we need a backup plan? Okay. Well, the fucking guy wears a mask most of the movie. So, you know, and we, and, and we don't shoot his stuff with a mask off till week three. So maybe we find a stunt double and just put the jacket and a mask on. Wait, so we're going to cast a stunt double and then try to hopefully find an actor that is the same size as them. It's a bit ass backwards. And so, I say to my stunt coordinator, Blair, I was like, all the guys you like, who are the, who are the best at reading and, and who do you think would be up for it? And he goes back and he goes, okay, I've got three guys. I was like, okay, please let them, let me know if they want to audition. He's like, okay, actually one of them's injured. So he's out of commission. I was like, okay. So two guys. It's like, actually one of those guys is kind of 
thinks it's outside of his comfort zone. The word, too many words, and he doesn't think he could do it. I was like, oh, okay. So it's only one guy. And that guy ended up being Simon Northwood. And like, I showed my wife the audition and I was like, tell me that's not the best one we've seen. And she's like, it fucking really is. And, uh, and Simon's like a veteran stunt performer. So now all of a sudden, in addition to getting this amazing actor, I got this like deeply talented martial artist who could do everything I, that the movie needed, but could also most importantly, give an extra layer of safety. You know, because a stunt, if a stunt performer's on set and they're not in front of the camera, they're just off to the side to make sure everything's safe and to make sure no one hits their fucking head or eats it too hard, right? Now I had that in the fucking scene. So the guy that's brutalizing these people is also making sure that he's doing it as safely as he possibly can. And so he was able to look out for them, which was just like one more kind of advantage we had for a small movie with no time. Wow. And that like that choreography of and frenzy, I'll use that word, the frenzy of the violence and what he inflicts on people, the speed of it, the sheer speed of it, I would think would be a dangerous thing to film. And we were lucky that it was him doing it. And that it was choreographed by one of my best friends and one of the groomsmen at my wedding, George Chortov, who, if you've seen the goon movies, plays one of the two Russian brothers on the on the Highlanders team. So George is a very, very accomplished um, stunt performer, martial artist and coordinator on his own, in addition to being a really accomplished and great actor. And um, so we had he's part of my group of friends and all we do is hang out and watch movies and talk about movies and shit we think would be a cool thing to do and or something cool we saw and so he and i would just hang out and talk about movie fighting and shit and tried and we would one of the fucking bad habits we have is we both shared an interest in world star hip-hop fight videos and, yeah. so we just <laughs> and and literally one day in my backyard we were like this is the shit that's got to be in movies now. That's the energy that we should be trying to recreate. We should be trying to bury choreography and sequence as much as we can. You shouldn't be able to see the beats. You shouldn't be able to see the moves and they shouldn't all land flush. It should, it's we're sacrificing energy in doing that. And so this was a chance to put into practice that theory that we had come up with just smoking weed in my backyard, quite apart from, anything to do with this movie it was just a convo for the sake of a convo between friends, but this was our time to do it. And so George choreographed every inch of that kill. And it's just like, it's a masterpiece as, a, as far as I'm concerned. So it's, it's George's planning and Simon's execution. Pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about the prosthetics? Because I'm like seriously in love. They're so beautiful. Oh, awesome. oh my God. And who did yeah. them? Yeah. Where are they right now? How yeah. can we get one in our house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're, they're works of art, man. They're, they're done by, created by one of Canada's greatest artists, Paul Jones. I've known Paul since I was like 18 when he did prosthetics for a movie that I got killed in. And we kind of just like, I don't know, you know, when two nerds meet, you connect. And so you just like speak the same fucking language and dig the same shit. And one of the coolest things about getting to finally direct a movie in my 30s after acting in this business since I was 12 is there's a bunch of people who I worked with when I was a kid who are still working and and it's like I get to kind of yeah we get you know call in a favor or two or not even a, it's just like Paul said to me back when I was 18 he's like you're gonna make horror movies and when you do I'm gonna do your shit and and he built some prosthetic stuff for Goon 2 
as well is uh, in the climax of Goon 2, Doug breaks his fist on uh, on Anders Kane's jaw. And we do a close-up of all the finger bones being pushed backwards and coming up out of the skin. And Paul built that thing. And so now is a chance to do the thing he loves doing, which is building, sort of doing gore effects. And And if you Google Paul and see the shit he's worked on, like, if you ever saw any of the TV show I did called Man Seeking Woman, every crazy creature on that show Paul did, in addition to a bunch of rigs since time immemorial. Like he started on Hellraiser three for fuck's sake. So he's been around and just a, a, a true a true artist. And so we got together and figured out what we wanted it to be, which was uh, anatomically correct, trying to go as close to kind of verisimilitude and reality as we could but but we also wanted to build something that somebody could see a design and an intention uh, in so it had to be something that was awful but that somebody could see an aesthetic intention in and so um and so i just kind of let i stayed out of the way and let paul and his team build everything and they just they they're the best and their workshop in scarborough is my favorite one of my favorite places in in the city is the terrible triptych, is that part actor, part prosthetic, or all prosthetic? It's a very good question. Aha, good question. So, uh, both. So, it depends what shot. In the wides, it's all prosthetic. In the close-up, that's, that's, an, that's, one, that's Nia, one of our actors. But the rest of the time, it's all dummies. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Shocking. Oh, my God. Leo, you had a question to follow up right on that scene, actually. Yeah, there, there are many great unsettling and disturbing scenes in the movie that I really loved, such as the terrible triptych uh, reveal scene or the dinner table scene or the nighttime road scenes. <laughs> Every scene. Favorite... <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, was, uh, what was your favorite sequence or scene to shoot? Uh, I think my favorite to shoot was probably... I so the gun stuff we there was no uh, rain towers which was no water trucks which like makes it way easier but but I was like super stressed because car stuff is is a real bitch and we had to we had to fucking crash this car into a ditch and as anybody in stunts will tell you you can't a car will do what it does it's a you can sort of vector a general idea of where it's going to end up, but because of the nature of it, it's kind of a guess. So that car actually goes into that ditch way harder than anybody expected it to. (laughs) And so you don't want anybody to get hurt and all this shit. So as a result on a car day where there's a car stunt, it's just like there's an added fucking layer of stress. I'd say the car scene with the kids and the knife stuff uh, is really was a fun one. Super fun because that was the real, that was pure horror filmmaking, man, in every way. But it was very trying because we were all fucking soaking wet, uh, especially those poor kids. Like they, and I had them scream their bloody blue murder all fucking night. And like, and I, and I started kind of fucking with them where I would send Simon running at their car at different times in each take I would do so that they'd never kind of, they could never get used to when he was coming. So I would just be like, just chat, chat about how scared you are, fill up the space. Cause you know, the more you talk, you, your anxiety will come down. So you guys are talking to make yourselves feel better. So just keep talking. And so they were, I just tell them to talk. And then I just be like, Simon, all right, five seconds in now you run. Okay. This one, wait, wait 30 seconds. Let them talk over now. Go, 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 go. So I just kept trying. So these poor kids had to go through this, like, 
Groundhog Day of being surprised and brutalized and then screaming their arses off in the rain all night. But they were so fucking up for it. And I, I kept apologizing and they kept being like, no, this is the best. This is like, you know, getting, getting sort of into it and getting to play around. Right. Cause it, because all movies are, are cops and robbers. It's all a version of playing cops and robbers in the backyard. And when you get to be physical and use all of your fucking instrument, it's can, there's a, there's a fun to be had. The sets are astounding. The main house we see in the film is stunning. I'm assuming this would be the work of Michelle Lannon, your production designer. She created something right out of a haunted attraction maze. It's incredibly immersive and terrifying. What exactly went into creating this? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Yeah, Michelle is a spectacular artist, spectacular production designer, and her whole team, including her daughter, Sophie, just do such lovely work. There's such an attention to detail in this flick. You can look close at everything. Every comic book cover, every inch of the radio station, like there is a detail and intention to everything. Like it's really kind of astounding how, and and they, they really work their arses off. So we, you know, we had kind of outlined in the script this idea, uh, you know, and it was like sort of Todd were closing the ring and coming to the place where it all kind of started. And it also was kind of meant to double as Todd's mind's eye. Like this is him. This is him at the center of his, of his shit. And so, you know, we, so first we had to find a house that would let us fuck it up. Like we did because we lit it on fire. <laughs> we lit the inside of this fucking house on fire, man. And so it was a tough sell for our locations team to go out and find like a bunch of, you know, and, you know, and they, they'd find houses, but they were just like kind of not the right thing. And we found one, This and it's just a beautiful house that people live in like right up until we shot and they moved right back in after we shot. It's just like lovingly maintained 19th century Victorian estate. Like not like something that is like going to be gutted or anything. Like these people were like anally clean and they, and the thing was so lovingly put together and and cared for when we all walked in on our scout, we were like, you've told them what we want to do, right? (laughs) Oh my God. I asked like 10 times because I was, because I was like, there's no fucking way they want us, they're okay with us doing this. But they were, and they were like super nice about it and, um, and even came to visit. And, and so, yeah, we just covered the inside of that fucking house in in crazy shit. And, um, and then lit it on fire. And wait, you actually lit it on fire? Like that was real? yeah there, oh, there there's a oh, damn yeah yeah no there are some there's like one or two painted in flames to uh there's like one or two painted in flames to juice it a bit but no we had full-on flame bars and the entire table was covered in accelerant as were as was every inner <laughs> on the wall we, we lit everything on that when we burnt that fucking tree down we burnt the fucking record player we melted everything and we were and we were all just in there and and then when it came time to do the big burn i remember saying to the fireman i was like hey, you're the only person on set that can call cut that isn't me so you so you just you're the boss here i this is a movie there's not a single moment of it that's worth us being in danger so the second so i said like, can you just ballpark is there a, is there a hero kind of temperature we're trying to avoid? Is there, is there a time limit? Like, you know, he's like, honest to God, I can't tell you 
how much time you'll have because he goes, this is a 110 year old house. He goes, I don't know what the fuck is in those walls. Oh, and, so, and we're not going to plug a hole in to see what's in there. So he goes, so I'm going to be on the conservative conservative end and call it before I normally would. And I was like, you please, please. But yeah. So, so yeah, we actually just lit the entire dining room of this like beautiful house. <laughs> oh my God. And you, it was it lasted a pretty long scene too. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. let it burn. Yeah. It's amazing. This, yeah. this we did. And our steady cam op, Johan literally just does this fucking long drifting oneer back from the fucking burning hands of our two dummies. And he just, so he was in there drifting backwards through the fucking fire. Yeah. We, we really did all that. It's just like, usually you have, Usually that kind of stuff's on big movies, you know. Right, you're right. It's spectacular looking though, man. <laughs> yeah, that whole that yeah, whole scene you. is so spectacular. It's really thank unique. You. It's unlike anything we've seen. I mean, ever. Thank it's amazing. It's amazing. Much. Yeah. Another yeah. thing to highlight, you're a fucking genius dialogue writer, man. <laughs> there's so yes. many scenes. I mean, there's there's conversational funny scenes like you rating the hotel by potatoes or saying <laughs> rural all real. Then there's really poignant scenes like the conversation at one point in the back of a van was unlike right. anything we've heard in a horror film that gives oh, cool. a moment that gives such gravity to what's going on. How important was it to give that film the, like that, that moment in particular an opportunity to reflect and really think about the themes it raises? All of a sudden, the viewer is a victim of the violence as well, in a sense, it, it gives you a totally That's different perspective. It makes it real and sad. Yeah, that was the idea. Like I really wanted um, the film to be, you know, there's a sort of tradition in, in horror or used to be uh, that, that, you know, but very Gothic tradition of horror and love stories being kind of connected in a deep, in a deep and meaningful way, you know, like I'd, I'd argue the crow is as heartbreaking as it is anything else. And, and so I knew that that was something that I really wanted in this movie. There's a good, there's a not, and it's not necessarily one that I can always put my finger on, but there's a definite strain, strain of Gothic horror in, in random acts of violence. Um, and so I wanted the thing to have a big beating heart on it. I really believed it was a love story as much as anything else. And, and I wanted, I guess I had, I had tried, I was trying to think of how many times I'd seen on screen and, and, and my, and I'm sure there's plenty of, plenty of examples of this. I just, I, I was not accustomed to seeing characters like actually get prepared to give up, you know, like, like in, in, it's always Scooby-Doo. Everybody always has a fight in them. Everybody's always trying to fucking figure out how they're going to get out of this MacGyver their way out. And I just was like, there's got to be a time. There's got to be a point when hopelessness sets in. It's like, it seems to be the most human way to process it. And so I tried to, tried to create the scene that I thought would happen. Like I thought that's what maybe it would sound like back there. And I also was like, wanted if, if, if Todd, if Kathy is sort of uh, at Todd's, the mercy of Todd's creativity throughout our whole story, if, if, if Todd's writer's block is his number one priority um, to the detriment of everyone around him, I wanted that to be the moment where she finally lets go. She finally lets go. It's like a relationship and, and you, you, you fight about the same shit, you know, and in a relationship that ends, 
it often ends when you stop caring about that thing that you fought about every time you've ever had a fight. It's always been basically the same theme. And at a certain point, you stop wanting and caring if it gets better. And so I thought that would be profoundly, if we did it right, I thought it would be a profoundly uh, heavy thing for Todd to finally come to his senses, to finally realize where his priorities should be and for it to be too late, for it to come at the same time that Kathy is sort of accepting that it's over. And I thought that that would be, you know, because often you learn your lesson too late. And, and I think certainly in my life, I've seen a lot of men who, by virtue of just getting older, they get more mild. And all of a sudden, they have these sort of come to Jesus moments where now, guy that was hard ass to his kid his whole life, now is a softy. Because the chemicals in him are forcing him to be more of a softy. And he's got to now reconcile that it's probably too late because that, that, it doesn't mean anything now, you know? And so now that every, you know, and so Todd coming to that realization, it's too fucking late it, 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 because it, it, it's cheap now. So it's like your ideals only mean something when they're inconvenient, right? Like that, that is kind of somewhere in there. That's, that's incredibly deep. I mean, another yeah. moment, another example of, being confronted with the reality of, I guess maybe the, because uh, this film is so much about the, what the energies of what we put out there and asking the question, is there a responsibility, you know, of doing that? One of the first instances we see is when the guy comes to the convention and shows this, this model of a kill room that yeah, he made, yeah. you know, and then it makes you think, hmm, is there an inherent responsibility as creators or as a person, just as a parent or whatever in, in the energy that you put out and does it have, does it have an effect? Is there a responsibility? I, I would argue, I think, I think in, unquestionably there is. I think the debate that needs to be had is what degree. Cause, cause, because I, I think that you, we are, to some degree, responsible for anything we put out into the public. This is why we have curtains to vote behind. So that if you don't want to get into a debate... You don't have to. You're allowed to keep your thoughts and opinions uh, to yourself. But I would argue that once you go out and elect to start sharing ideas, you are absolutely connected to them to some degree. If I go out in the street and tell a complete stranger to go fuck himself, you can't say I'm not I'm I'm not responsible for any, in any way for what happens. Like if he comes and he fucking decks me, fine. He decked me, fine. He escalated, but he wouldn't attack me if I didn't tell him to go fuck himself. So you can't take me out of there. Like I'm inherently part of the causation. Right. So, so I, I, I don't know. And I, and I get, and I, and I think that there's a sort of uh, people get their backs up anytime it feels like someone's telling them what to do, but then you get this really kind of boring binary debate about allowed and what I'm allowed to do. It's not about allowed, right? Like, because like when 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 Columbine happened, everyone said like, Marilyn Manson and fucking Doom made made these kids kill kids. That's fucking horseshit, right? But equally horseshit is this idea that carte blanche means you have no responsibility. Like that, I, I'd say that's they're, they're equally absurd, equally thin, and equally reactionary. I think we can figure out in in trying to understand who we are, what we're interested in, and why we like what we like. 
you know, it's and and by the way, the the end of that process is not a guarantee of self condemnation. Like it's the same thing of like you go to the grocery store, you might still buy junk food, but you're probably going to look at what's in it because you'd rather know. Even if you elect to put all of it inside, you still would rather know, wouldn't you? Somewhere in there's something about so that that's kind of my thing is like I certainly have been trying to unpack in me why I'm fascinated why by what I'm fascinated by, and then and then I have to ensure that I never let my fascination be at the expense of my morals or my humanity. So I never want to get too caught up in how crazy something is and forget what that looks like for someone going through it. Very well said, my man. Very well said. And it's very well said with this movie as well that everybody has to see right away. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Jay, man, thank you so much, seriously, for taking the time to talk with us. I have one more question. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I just want to know if you have any other horror projects in the works. Oh, yeah. So uh, I don't know what I'm allowed to mention of the shit that I'm allowed to mention. You can um, mention it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've already no, gotten into the principal's office once during this promo uh, <laughs> push. So I, 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 I've got a lot of stuff. I, I, it's always feast or famine in, in, in any freelance work. And so it's kind of, I can never put all my eggs in one basket at once. Like, you know, when we did Goon 2, we had been developing Random Acts for four or five years at that point. And so there there are at any given time, right now it's like five or six things of varying degrees of maturation that I'm kind of, you know, uh, but, but, but yes. So to answer, to answer your question, yes, ab- ab- absolutely. And uh, I guess the thing I'm, maybe can talk about because I'm the only one doing it right now. It's, it's not like any, it's not like built anything, but it's, so there, there's the things I've got going on that like have other people and a bit of interest and some money and shit behind them. But then there's the stuff that I'm just doing for me that hopefully I can bring to somebody and get it to become a thing. So, so the next kind of like baby like that, that Kareem uh, Hussein and I have been talking about since last year is just like, we have a kind of a, our take on the Robin hood story. We want to, there's a, there's a really kind of heavy duty, fucked up, trippy Robin hood. We want to do so uh, like, uh, no fucking castles, no horses, just fucking dirty and in the woods. And, uh, Robin hood source material. It's really trippy shit. It's really, really trippy shit. And so we just kind of like, and we're both huge fans of like, First Blood and Taxi Driver and so it'd be somewhere kind of in there but in the woods and it's like yeah that's gonna be amazing Amazing. that's cool man quickly just uh, was it a few years ago where at one point you were to be involved with um I don't have the title in front of me but it's an exorcism was it based on a book oh exorcism diaries that's it yeah Jesse and I got hired and did a draft of that that movie like every horror writing team in LA got a pass at that fucking thing at some point, it seems like, um, cause after, after they took us, cause we were like, we were writers like two or three writers at two or three. And then after us, it went to, um, I think the guys that did starry eyes and I don't know where it is at where it's at now. I was just thinking about it yesterday, but yeah, we, there somewhere out there is our fucking insane draft of that. Yeah. That opened uh, 5,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Before we split, 
do you would you want to see the fucking truck the model truck from the movie I have oh yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> of course <laughs> I was gonna ask about that all right so and and Dougie's broken fist from Goon Two is in here somewhere oh, too. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, nice. I love nice. show and tell. Severed, severed head from random acts of violence. Oh, you do? Oh my gosh, this is awesome. But so here. Wow! Damn. Who built that thing? Our property master, uh, Michael Genera. Yeah, just such lovely. We've got so much fun. Take home. I got to take home so much fun shit. Here's here's the cardboard cutout from the comics. Oh, that's great. (laughs) And I think, let me see. Let me see. Uh, Sorry, this will be terribly boring if I don't find what I'm looking for. Now, ah, shit, it's in here somewhere. So there's a bunch of shit in here, as you can see. This is my slasher man fucking place. And uh, <laughs> there is so there is a severed head in a box in here somewhere. Oh, um, that's yeah. so awesome. <laughs> anyway, thank you for having me. Hey man, th- thanks for the little yeah. tour. We love yeah. that. It's our favorite part. We that's love awesome. that stuff, man. That's thanks, great. Man. Yeah. Dude, thank you again so much. We honestly yeah. like we really love this movie, man. Congrats, so man. Great, really, really appreciate that. That's like, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I don't have the words, just, just, but yeah. And we we had always hoped. The hope was we knew there would be people that hated it. The hope was that there would be people that loved it as much as the people that hated it hate it. And that's kind of what's happened. So so it's really cool. So I it means a lot that you're connecting to the parts of it you guys are connecting to as well. Looking forward to speaking again on your next one, man. I fucking a you you you're mouth to God's ears. Thank you so much, everyone. That was the Boo Crew podcast episode one fifty two. Special thanks to our guest Jay Barishel. Follow him at Jonathan Adam Saunders Barishel on Instagram. And I can't believe I got that right. Did I actually get that right? <laughs> Jonathan Adam Saunders Barishel on Instagram. I got it right again. Damn. Oh man. And at B A R U C H E L N D G. I got it right. On Twitter. Woo! Oh my god. Lord, give me a woo. <laughs> woo! Yeah! At time of release, see random acts of violence exclusively on the shutter right now. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGTBQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.